welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hey everybody, it's Micah coming to you live from my home. Why? Because we have COVID in the Witham home, which is why I wasn't there on Sunday. So sad to say, uh, missed you all. Hope you had a great day. But I worked hard on a teaching and geez louise, it's the end of a sermon series that we've been in for the last six weeks and I wanted to get this thing on record. So that's what we're about to do. I mean, lots going on, right? It's uh, Thanksgiving week. That's tomorrow. No, today's Tuesday. Thanksgiving is on Thursday. It's Thanksgiving week. Advent begins on Sunday. We got the Advent kickoff coming up. Meatballs, mashed potatoes, tree lighting, assuming I don't have COVID. I will see you all there to light the tree, to trim the tree, sing some carols, eat some meatballs. Um, We got a Christmas concert coming. Uh, Mel's been planning, uh, putting this together. We got Tides of Winter coming back on the 16th or 17th, whatever that Friday night is in December. Very excited about that. And uh, all the things, right? Christmas Eve, two and four. Um, So hopefully uh, we will, and we're starting a new series because Advent begins on the 28th. So uh, let's finish this one up. We're going to wrap up the series we've been in for the last, I think, six weeks called Faith and Doubt. We've been exploring the nature of the spiritual journey, the normal and natural stages of faith and seasons of faith that we experience in our lives. And we've been using this framework from Brian McLaren's book called Faith After Doubt with the four stages, right? Simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. And again, Jenna mentioned on Sunday, uh, we like to think in linear ways where it it all goes in one direction and you can't go back. But maybe a better way to understand uh, seasons of faith and the spiritual journey is more like a spiral where you keep drilling down and going deeper, but sometimes, you know, you may come back to a a season or a phase in a particular way. Um, So for the sake of simplicity, um, the first stage is simplicity. And often you could, or you could describe this with words like dualism, dependence, authority. Uh, Everything is sort of uh, black and white thinking. Um, There are very clear rules. Um, Moving to the second stage of faith is complexity. And that's where you you basically work the plan that you've learned in stage one. Um, pragmatism, independence, uh, building or constructing the container. Richard Rohr talks about the container of faith. And that happens in this second stage of complexity. Uh, where many folks find themselves at Awaken is this third stage of perplexity. You begin to ask some questions about the uh, prag- pragmatism and the simplicity of uh, of stages one and two, the easy answers of stages one and two, and uh, often deconstruction and a lot of questions and skepticism are present in stage three. Uh, and that leads you to, hopefully, uh, the, the last stage, which is harmony, uh, unitive, integrated, uh, generous, humble, and free in terms of how we experience the world and, and walk out our faith. Uh, In this series, we've talked about the importance of transcending and including, so bringing with you the things that you've learned in the the previous stages. Uh, That doubt and questions are are not the enemy, but rather they are the doorway through which uh, we move in and transition often, uh, move from one stage of faith to another in the spiritual journey. It's it's the constant dance partner in the spiritual journey, doubt and questions are. So... Uh, we've talked about Nicodemus and his journey in, in the book of John, which is beautiful, from darkness to light, uh, from sort of uh, 
an anonymous question asker in the beginning to standing at the foot of the cross, bringing spices to bury Jesus. We've looked at Thomas, uh, doubting Thomas as he's coined. He's honest, though. Uh, with his questions. And and he is the first in the gospel to declare Jesus as Lord and God. Uh, We looked at Jesus himself, where he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And then last week, we looked at Psalm 77, uh, the psalmist who who offers this beautiful, um, deep, profound questions about God, brings his memories of God with him, uh, and does this all in the midst of community and relationship. And so today, We're going to look at John the Baptist. He is, of course, the forerunner, uh, the herald of Jesus, and we're going to let both John's question and Jesus's answer have space in the room this morning. Today, well, Sunday, was Christ the King Sunday, if you didn't know. It's the Sunday in the church calendar uh, where we sort of before the story begins again. So it's the last day of the church calendar. The church calendar begins at Advent. And traditionally, it's the Sunday where we celebrate the fact that Jesus the Christ is who he is who we said he was, uh, that he's the Lord, the rightful King and ruler of creation, because of his life and death and resurrection, and defeat of sin and evil and its effect. Um, many of you find yourselves at somewhere near stage three at Awaken, where there are a lot of questions, a lot of things that are you're working your way through. Right? Do I believe this anymore? If not, why? Or if so, why? Uh, Is this belief consistent with my experience? Can I trust my experience? Why did those people tell me to hate my body and not trust my heart? And what what ultimately has been the fruit of that belief? And maybe even, is Jesus of Nazareth the Christ? Um, All good questions. This whole series was and is rooted in the desire that I and we as a staff have for you to help you move and grow in the spiritual life, spending more and more time living from the place of harmony which again is not a place of having found all the right answers, but rather a posture, a humility, where you recognize that it's all grace and God's presence is all around you all the time and a place of learning to live from your yes to God's divine presence and love. So this week, we're going to look at John in this moment in John's life when he asks a really important question. And we're going to notice a couple of things um, before we end with a prayer and a poem that actually Jenna read on Sunday as well. Um, But I believe, we believe, a prayer written from a place of harmony. If you could, if you could find one, uh, this is it. So uh, this story is from Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, follow along. In verse 18, the writer says this. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, John, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many spirits who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Pray with me. God, this morning as we take a few moments to uh, think about and and listen to this story of John uh, and his interaction with and about Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes 
uh, open our ears, um, break the dams in our hearts, uh, the walls, the places where we have kept things. Uh, and I pray that you would come to us by your spirit and invite us out into the light that we might see you and hear you for who you truly are. In Christ's name and by the power of the Spirit, the church said together, amen. Let's rock and roll, people. A little bit of context uh, for where we are in the gospel story and where John finds himself, right? We meet John the Baptist early on in the gospels, especially in the gospel of Luke, where his birth story is foretold in similar fashion as Jesus's birth story. Uh, His mother was Elizabeth, his father was Zechariah. Mary and Elizabeth, the the mother of Jesus and the mother of John, evidently were pregnant near or around the same time. Um, And Zechariah is the author of one of the canticles, the four canticles or songs in Luke's gospel. We actually did a series about that a few advents ago. You have Mary's song, you have Zechariah's song, Simeon's song at the temple in Luke 2, and the angel's song. Um, John emerges from the desert uh, living an ascetic lifestyle, denying and sort of distancing himself. And he begins preaching and paving the way as a prophet, announcing the arrival of Jesus. Most famously, John's found out beyond the city, beyond the limits of the city at the River Jordan with his disciples, proclaiming and offering a baptism of repentance, which is fascinating because he's offering that to the Jewish people who are supposed to be inside of in. But he's saying, no, you have to come out here outside of the city and repent, turn around, go in a different direction. Another sermon for another time. He ends up baptizing Jesus in the Jordan, effectively starting Jesus's ministry and passing the baton to Jesus. John even says, I must decrease and he, Jesus, must increase. Um, We hear bits and pieces about John up until Luke chapter 7, which we just read. But we have to assume that he's following along with this crowd of people. He's he's sort of announced Jesus' arrival. Jesus comes, he baptizes him, and he's interested in the happenings of Jesus. Um, What he's doing, what he's teaching, who he's healing. John's got a sort of front row seat to this emerging ministry of Jesus. And after all, he's been announcing that he will be the Messiah, the promised one of God who will bring about a new kingdom. So John's on the Jesus train, friends. He's all in for this guy. So the first thing I want to notice is what suffering makes you do. According to Luke chapter 7, John finds himself in prison. Evidently, he's spoken out against Herod Antipas. Both Matthew and Mark record that Herod Antipas had John the Baptist arrested and imprisoned after the prophet John condemned the king's marriage to his wife Herodias as illegal. Evidently, she had previously been married to his brother, Philip. Uh, So in chapter 7, we find John suffering, sort of rotting in a prison cell at a fortress known as Macarius. Um, I think it's along the Dead Sea, if I'm not mistaken. Now, friends, I have never spent any time in a prison cell or in a jail, but I have to imagine that when you're there, if you're there, um, really all you have is your thoughts. There's a bed, according to the movies and the scenes we may have seen. There's a bed, there's maybe a toilet, but there's not a lot of accoutrement. There's, There's... you're, you're it. You're there alone. Um, and all you have is your thoughts. And so here we have John left suffering and alone in a prison cell with nothing but his thoughts. And I think it's important to notice what happens. He calls for a visit from his disciples and he sends them to Jesus asking, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for someone else? For just a minute, I want to lean into one of the things that suffering often makes you do. And I would suggest that this is pretty normal and natural across the board. When people are in the midst of suffering, they question what they know. Like when the screws get tightened and it begins to cost you to affirm and believe in something, you immediately begin to question whether it's worth it and or 
if it's even true. John knew Jesus. They were cousins for heaven's sakes. John baptized Jesus, proclaimed and announced the arrival of the one who is to come. But the moment he's in prison and suffering, his first question is, are you the one? As parents, I'll say for Laura and I, we resonate with this, right? We, we made all these decisions when our kids were young, decisions that we believed were the right ones, decisions that we spent a lot of time thinking about and, and researching more Laura than I, but discussing and then pulling the trigger saying, we're going to do this and not that. But the moment it gets hard, the moment things start going in a direction you didn't see coming or, or the, the moment something goes off the tracks, we find ourselves often asking, should we have done this or that? Or what if we didn't do it right? Suffering makes you question and doubt what you know. Things that you have thought about, spent time praying about, discerning, maybe even asking for wisdom of others to make a decision. And when you suffer, when the screws get tightened, one of the things that happens is we question, we doubt whether or not it was the right decision or if it's true or if we should go in that direction. And I want to just begin this morning's teaching as we look at John and we see he, of anybody who would have known that Jesus was the one, it's John. And yet... When he suffers, the first thing that's recorded in the Gospels that comes out of his mouth is doubt, question. So I think that's just an important lesson to learn, an important wisdom to have along the way, that if you do experience suffering, if you are experiencing suffering, what will likely happen is that doubt and questions about things that you would have previously been more sure of rises up in you. And it's just important to take notice of that. That's going to be helpful as you journey. John asks, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Which leads to a second observation, and that is, what do you expect God to do? Who do you expect God to be? John's question is certainly wrapped up in John's doubts, but I also believe it's, it's wrapped up in John's expectations for who or what the Messiah would be and do. And I've talked about this before, but it's important to remember. Israel is the promised land, housing the promised and chosen people of God, the Hebrew people. By the time Jesus shows up on the scene, the Jews have been living a nightmare for over 700 years. That's longer than America's even been in existence, friends. In 721, the Assyrians take the northern kingdom captive and effectively wipe them off the planet. In 586, the Babylonians come in and they take the southern kingdom captive, the southern kingdom of Judah. The Persians capture, capture the Babylonians and effectively become the new landlord or oppressor. The Jews are allowed to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. This is the books of Nehemiah and Ezra around 500. But eventually the Greeks come and Alexander the Great and then the Romans now occupy Israel. It's over 700 years of occupation. Foreign occupation, pagan occupation. How is this possible? Where is God? When will God return to Zion? When will God defeat evil? Who will topple the rulers in the empires? Who will vindicate Israel and punish the oppressors? There are all these questions clanging off the walls and the hearts and the minds of the Jews, including John. And there were all kinds of different answers and expectations about what God would do and what the response or the appropriate response to end this madness was and how to get out of it. 
It's a little bit like our situation in America right now. All this division, all these ideas about what's needed to get us back on the right path. Who will make America great again? Was America ever really great? Or who gets to decide what is great? Who will save the world from tyrants and pandemics? It's a little bit like our denomination right now, with all of our division and ideas on what's needed and necessary to get us on the right path. Friends, in Jesus' time, there were four very clear groups of people who had different thoughts and ideas about what the Messiah would be and what the Messiah should do when he got there. The Pharisees, they were all about holiness. Adherence to the law is going to fix the problem, which is why we see them throwing stones at people all throughout the gospel. The Sadducees, another group of people, they go along to get along. These folks are making political alliances and they're, they're trying to get power through politic. Then you have the zealots. These are revolutionary fighters for God, taking matters into their own hands. Think Peter in the garden, chopping off the guy's ears, right? So you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the zealots. And then you have the Essenes, likely a group of people John, the Baptist, would have been a part of. Separatists, living out in the desert, waiting for God. What's clear in John's question is that Jesus' ministry of healing and identifying with the lowly is not what John expected God's promised Messiah would do or be. And John is confronted with the reality that the power of God may not look like the power of men. When God arrives, it might not look like you think it's going to look, which sets us up for an all-important question, one that we've come back to over the years at Awaken, and one that I think that is really important for us to consider, and that is, what do you expect God to do? What are your expectations for Yahweh, for God? If, in fact, we begin the season of Advent, which culminates in the light of God coming to earth in the person of Christ. And the, the, de- the declaration, the, the, the statement that God is not absent, but that God has come and is coming and is present. When you feel and experience the presence of God in your own life, what do you expect it to feel like? What do you expect it to look like? when God is present in the world. Our expectations and being present to them, being able to name them, is very, very important in the spiritual life. And I think we see in John's question a wrestling of his expectations of what God would do and be like when God arrived. Before we get to Jesus's answer to John, I want to I want to notice one more thing about John and his ministry that I think is appropriate for Awaken, and that is the idea that John stood in the threshold and held the door open for people to see and experience God in a new way. John stands in the threshold. When we started Awaken 11 years ago, almost 12 years ago this summer, this coming summer, uh, I I studied with a group of people with a rabbi named Alan, and one of those people was a woman named Mary. Mary is a very sensitive soul. She has the capacity to hear God in very nuanced and real ways that I I wish I could and have had experiences like. Be that as it may, Mary had a a dream, a vision um, of something that was not yet, but um, included and was about me and this church, Awaken. And she pulled me aside one day at one of the studies and she said, Micah, I I feel like I have this vision um, for you and for Awaken, and I'm wondering if I could share it with you. I trust Mary. I I love Mary. And I said, yeah, I'd I'd love to hear that. She said, when I see you and when I see Awaken, I see you uh, 
standing in the threshold and holding the door open for people. For people who wouldn't have otherwise had the door open for them. For people to see and experience God in new ways. For people to cross over into a new way of seeing and experiencing God over a threshold, as it were. This was my friend Mary's vision for me as I started Awaken. And I want to suggest that it's become true of you, of us as a church, that w- this work that we now do together. You see, John holds the door open to those who had ears to hear and eyes to see this new thing that God was doing on outside of town at the River Jordan, so to speak. Not everybody was able to see it and hear it, or wanted it for that matter. So Awaken, those of you that call this place home, I believe that this is part of the work that God has called us to do, to be people of the threshold, holding the door open to those who have been a part of an old life or an old system, who are ready for a new and fresh experience of God's Spirit, who can feel the breeze on their faces and want to take the boat out of the harbor and to sail, to hold the door open for those who maybe have otherwise had the door closed on them, to hold the door open for people to cross over into a new way of seeing and experiencing God. And so if you call Awaken Home and this is your church, I want to invite you to see yourself as threshold people, holding the door open for people to see and experience the fresh and the new movement of God's Spirit. And as we close this morning, I mentioned as we began that I wanted to hold space for John's question. Are you the one? He doubts and he has questions about it. But Jesus answers his question. And it seems clear to me that Jesus' answer is yes, I am the one. John asks a very honest question. Are you the one we've been waiting for? And it's a question that has doubt and expectation all wrapped up in it. It's honest and straightforward. And I want to believe it's in a search of what is true regarding the divine presence in the world. We want to affirm the value and importance of honest questions in the spiritual journey. We want to learn how to ask them from a place of integrity and vulnerability before God. And all this is true. And as Paul says, now we know in part through a glass dimly, like this is, this is part of our reality. And Jesus says, yes, I am the one. Jesus's response to John is, To heal many who had diseases, sicknesses, evil spirits, he gave sight to the blind. And then he says to John's disciples, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Basically, Jesus says, do you remember what the prophet Isaiah said back in chapter 61? When the Messiah would come, these things would happen. They're happening right now, John. So you tell John what you've seen, because the answer to that question is yes. I am the one. And this, friends, is a question that you and I must wrestle with today. On this day in the church calendar, Christ the King Sunday, is Jesus the one, the promised one of Scripture, the one truly human being who lived as we were made to live, the incarnate Christ in human form who shows us what God is like, the one who died and was resurrected, putting death in its grave and evil on notice, Jesus' answer to the question is yes, I am the one. And as always, I leave you with the question, do you believe that's true? Pray with me. God, as we take a few moments in silence to consider both John's question, are you the one that is to come? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one of God? And Jesus' apparent answer to that question, yes, I am the one. 
I pray that your Holy Spirit would find us and would invite us, woo us, to move one step closer towards you. And maybe that's a step across a threshold to a new way of seeing and hearing and understanding who you are. Maybe it's just inching closer. But I pray that in the next few moments of silence, you would do that work in our hearts. I want to close today by reading excerpts from this prayer. It's called Approaching the Mountain in Prayer. It's written by a woman named Barbara Brown Taylor. She also wrote a book called uh, An Altar in the World. Jenna found this prayer and and gave it to me when we started this series or maybe a couple weeks in and uh, as a way of just saying, gosh, I, I think that this is the kind of prayer that someone who lives in harmony is able to pray. And I've said all along the series that um, anyone can be a skeptic. Anybody can tear something down. But to really build a faith that you can live in with, in, with integrity and authenticity, that's the hard work. And so hopefully this series has been a, a movement a leading you towards that goal. And, and I want to leave you with this prayer, which I believe is, is honest and comes from a place of harmony, of humility and... Uh, generosity of spirit so receive this maybe even if you would close your eyes and imagine this prayer and 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 being there the places that it describes approaching the mountain in prayer dear god i don't know how to begin my prayers anymore It's not that I want to go back to the way it was when I imagined you with your chin on your hand, inclining your ear to me like a patient confessor or like a slightly more available father who might be persuaded to give me what I wanted in exchange for good behavior. The longer I have known you, the more I have lost sight of you, which is not as bad as it sounds. We are so close now that I can't imagine you with giant ears white eyebrows over golden eyes, massive hands that give or take by your inscrutable will. There would have to be much more distance between us for that. We are so close now that you come to me as breath, as pulse, wind, sap, the steady humming current that weds all living things. Imagine a mountain, I say to those that want to go there. One so familiar that you can see it with your eyes closed. Green in the summer, bare in the winter, iridescent at sunset. It's always where it's supposed to be. 
right there on the horizon. You have loved it from afar. Now imagine deciding to climb that mountain, not once, but over and over and over again. First by the marked path, then by the deer trails, then by making your own way up. And one day you pray in the dry stream bed. One day you pray under the stone outcrop. One day you pray face down in the sweet birch leaves. My point is, the better you know the mountain, the more intimate you become. The harder it is to see it whole as something separate from yourself. You're not looking at the mountain anymore. You're not even on the mountain. You are in the mountain's life as its life pours into you. This makes words hard to come by. Thank God you don't seem to mind. We both like the words because they mean I'm paying attention, though we both know the prayer is in the silence after. Ragged breath becoming steady, then still, until I am all ears for you. Here in the mountain of your presence where I cannot see you anymore. online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.